Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. We, did, we try to do different kinds of series here at Crossview. We try to like, so over summer we did a book study we tried to go deep into, into Romans. Hopefully, we succeeded at least to some extent. But we like to go deep into books. We also like to take on different topics. And, uh, and we often follow along a little bit with our pillars. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But any of you who's been around here for a while, we haven't looked at this uh, for a couple of months. But here at Crossview, we have these four pillars. These are some of the things that we're, as a church, that we feel called by God. This is sort of our unique calling. But the gospel is our foundation. Jesus is the way of salvation. And then we have these four pillars that we focus on. This idea that you often hear me saying, everyday life is spiritual. Literally, everyday life is spiritual. We're out in the world working and family and friends and all that sort of stuff for Jesus. Justice and missions. And then there's this whole biblical worldview piece, which comes up uh, hopefully in all of our sermons. We're trying to bring out context and how does this fit with our everyday life and, and what, what is a biblical worldview? How do we view the culture we're living in today? How do we apply it? And then we have this pillar of character and emotional health. And this next series we're working on is, is directly tied to this pillar. It's about character and emotional health. And we're going to be talking about contentment and happiness over the next few weeks. And so this series is called Killjoy's Wisdom from Scripture for a Happier, More Content Life. Now, the interesting thing is, you would think in our country today, those of us who are here today, we are living in one of the wealthiest countries in one of the wealthiest times in all of human history. Literally, of all the, you know, we, we talked a few weeks ago about, you know, the fact that somewhere over the course of human history, about 117 billion human beings have, have lived or are alive right now. And out of all of those 117 billion human beings, us here today in Steinbeck, in Canada, you know, in this, in 2023, are in like the top little tiny percentage, like less than 1% in terms of you compare us to the rest of human history in terms of wealth, security, comfort, leisure time. I know we don't always, you know, we don't always feel that, that life is that good, but if you compare us to 99 point whatever percent of people who have ever lived, we have it better. And so you would think in terms of wealth and comfort, security, safety, all sorts of stuff, you would think that as a result, we would be the happiest least anxious, most contented people in the top percent who ever lived, and that would actually not even be true. And we know that. We know that. But, but you would just think, I mean, here's, I mean, this, we're human beings. We have needs. So I need food. I need safety. I need security. I need some time to rest. You would think that when we get those things, we would automatically be content. And yet, in reality, what we experience is we have more of these things than most human beings have ever even imagined, and yet in our society still we struggle with worry, anxiety, discontentment, unhappiness. 
And so that's what this series is about. And why doesn't it come uh, automatically? Now, interestingly, Paul, we're going to start in Philippians 4, and then we're going to end back in this passage at the end of this sermon. But Paul has some super uh, interesting things to say about contentment in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Pay attention to that word plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, what I find so interesting about this passage is it makes sense to me that you would have to learn to be content if you had nothing. Because it makes sense to me, it probably makes sense to most of you, if you don't have a lot of stuff, it would be hard to be content. So I get it that Paul would say, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is, or uh, I have learned the secret of being content in, you know, when I have, when I'm hungry, or when I'm in want. What's interesting to me in this passage is that Paul says, yeah, I had to learn to be content when I had nothing, but I also had to learn to be content when I had plenty and when I was well-fed. Now, on the, one, on, on the one hand, that actually kind of makes me feel good. Because if the Apostle Paul had to learn to be content even when he was well-fed and when he had plenty, then that makes me feel a little better about how we're, we're doing in our culture. I mean, think of how spiritual that, that guy was. Like, I mean, he praying all the time. He talks all the time about how much he was praying, all the fasting, all the sufferings, all the beatings, just giving his whole life to God. You would think a guy like that, who's that spiritual, who's that prayerful, who sacrificed that much for God, you would think, oh yeah, he's just, he's just content. He, obviously, he's thankful for anything. If he has a little crumble of bread, he just thanks Jesus. But he says, no, no, he had to learn, okay? He had to learn the secret of being content, and not just when he had nothing, he had to also learn how to be content when he had lots. So there's hope for us, all right? Contentment is a skill that can be learned. And that's what this series is going to be about. We're going to talk about how do we learn this skill of contentment. And in our case, now, some of you might think that you're living with little, and maybe in comparison to many other people, you're, you're living with little, but in how Paul would have imagined our, most of us here, our situation, he would have imagined us as people who are living with plenty. So we're going to focus on how do we, how do we learn the skill of contentment in a culture and in a position and place of having abundance. Now, I do, before we get into that, I want to talk, lay a little bit of a foundation and I want to ask the question. I want to go back to this question of why isn't it automatic? Because I, I, I want us to get a little bit of an understanding of what contentment is before we can get practical about how we can grow in it. And so I want to ask this question again, why isn't it automatic? Like, it, it, it logically, we should think, if we weren't living this life and, and experiencing for ourselves how hard it is to stay content, logically, it makes sense, it, you know, it would make sense that I get what I want, now I feel content. I get what I need, now I feel content. The reality as we experience it is, no, lots of discontentment, lots of unhappiness, lots of anxiety, all those sorts of things. Now, Christians give different explanations for it, and particularly as pastors. 
the temptation for pastors is to get up. We're going to talk about contentment. And right away, we start off kind of like I start off the message. We are the wealthiest people who ever lived. We have the most abundance. We have the most security. We have the most leisure time of any people who have ever lived. And the fact that we're not content is because we are wicked, selfish, utterly evil to the core people. And this is a perspective that um, often, it feels like us as Christians, when we talk about problems in our society and problems with us as people, we often blame everything on how utterly ungrateful, selfish, and evil we human beings are. Now, obviously, um, you know, obviously we see evidence of ungratefulness and selfishness and evil in the world. But one of the things that I think is super important is that we not, as Christians and at church, that we start to actually look at this idea that we're so dreadful as people, and it's actually an oversimplification, and it doesn't help us actually understand some of the problems or some of the way out of the problems. All right? So, yes, the Bible says we're sinful and broken. We're going to look at a couple of passages. But I just want to think of, I want to just sit here for just a moment. Is the problem with us as humans the fact that to the core, we are utterly evil and wicked? And I would say we as Christians often way overstate this. All right? If we were as bad as some Christians talk about human beings, like the way some of us Christians talk about how bad human beings are, if things were actually that bad, I'm going to tell you right now, the human race would already be extinct. If human beings were actually utterly ungrateful, utterly selfish, and utterly evil to the core, there is no way there would be 8 billion people on planet Earth right now. Is that not true? Like, have you ever thought to think about the fact that the fact that there is 8 billion people on planet Earth right now actually tells us that there is a tremendous amount of good in human beings. Because I want you to think about, and I know some of you are, see, I'm actually pushing a little bit against something that is actually deeply ingrained in us. A lot of us actually believe that human beings are actually to the core, wicked, wicked, wicked. But I want to ask you something. Have you ever thought about, I mean, to have 8 billion people on planet Earth, do you realize how much hard work and organization and cooperation, and generosity, and kindness, and all sorts of things. Do you know how much of that stuff is needed in order for 8 billion people to be alive on planet Earth? It takes a lot. If we were all as utterly ungrateful, selfish, and evil as some Christians make us out to be, we would have gone extinct thousands of years ago. It's actually true. You say, but what about all the bad news? Every, every night I turn on the news and there's another mass shooting and there's another this, you know, another house got burned down, another serial killer, blah, 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 all sort of stuff. And yes, you're right. You, the, world, uh, the world certainly is broken. It is broken. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. But you want to know why we think it's all bad is because that is the only news we pay attention to. For every mass shooting there is, so we'll just pick on the, on the states for just a moment here, for every mass shooter there is out there that shoots a bunch of people, how many millions of people, including everyone here, 
how many millions of people got up yesterday, went to bed yesterday, lived their whole life without even ever thinking. It would make them sick to think about shooting people. For every serial killer, mass murderer, Adolf Hitler, whatever it is, for every one of those people, there are millions of people that just go about their business every day and work hard and feed their families and love their families. There's actually tons of good in the world. I'm not saying human beings aren't broken. There's tons of bad in the world. But the fact of the matter is, we talk as if everything is bad. If everything is bad, we would all be dead. I mean, you read a story about a neighbor, you know, some neighbor went and burned their neighbor's house down. How many millions of neighbors, how many millions of neighborhoods are out there right now that didn't get burned down, that no neighbor's house got burned down? Why? Because the people don't, human beings aren't utter murderers going around like little devils trying to absolutely destroy everything. Are we broken? Yes. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to show you a verse in just a second. But I first want to, I just want to make a, 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 I want to be vulnerable. I want to just sit on this point for just a moment because it is very hard to have contentment in the world when this is one of the recordings that's running through your brain all the time. I think a lot of Christians have this recording running in their brain, everyone's evil, we're all wicked, the world is falling apart. And when that recording plays over and over and over again, it is very hard to find contentment or peace or gratitude in the world. So I just, I want to get super vulnerable with you guys. Okay, I'm going to make a confession. Here's my confession. I have never once in my life, ever, been tempted to murder or assault or kill or hurt anybody. I've never been tempted. Well, maybe, you know, with words or something like that, but I've never been never been tempted to physically assault anyone. And you go, look at, oh, the guy's bragging. How many of you struggle with, the, with that? How many, of you, how many of you struggle, you get up every morning, you're like, oh, I just, if I don't have my devotions today, I'm going to kill someone. Now, sometimes Christians talk like that. Have you ever heard, by the way, and we use these phrases, right? As Christians, we're well-meaning. And I won't even ask for a show of hands. I've said this. We've all said this, right? I've heard people, very well-meaning, wonderful Christian people. It's like, if I don't have my devotions in the morning, I'm a horrible person. And I always want to ask them, like, what do you mean by horrible? Like, are you one devotion away from shooting a bunch of people? Like, if you miss your devotion, because then I'm moving away. If you're my neighbor, and you're one devotion, like, if I don't spend time with Jesus, I'm just going to kill a bunch of people. Whoa, okay. Okay. I'm going to move to a different place in town. You're like, what, a week of missed devotions away from, from burning a bunch of people's houses down? I know what we're trying to say. We're trying to say that Jesus makes a difference in our lives, and I love that, but we say it in ways that actually contribute to an incredibly negative worldview. Did you, think about it. Did G, is Jesus actually making you not a murderer? Like, I know Jesus has done a lot in my life, but I'm pretty sure even if I didn't have Jesus, I wouldn't have killed anyone yet. You know why I know that? Because I know lots of non-Christians. And do I want them to know Jesus? Yeah. I want them to know forgiveness and joy and hope, some of those things that I experienced from Jesus. And guess what? None of the non-Christians I know, though, are horrible or murderers or violent. 70, 80% of the world doesn't have Jesus. 
If they were all evil serial killers, we'd be dead. So the fact of the matter is, some of the things we Christians say about human nature actually doesn't match up with reality. And I want to just tie this a little bit into theology, because this is important. Unless we have a, 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 you know, a firm grasp on reality, we're going to have a hard time. The Bible says, do not fear and have peace. Some of the worldview us Christians have about human nature, there's no, there's no wonder a lot of Christians struggle with anxiety. Here's what the Bible says about human nature. And notice I'm not quite done. It's broken, for sure. But this is Genesis 1. God has just finished creating. And he's specifically just finished creating human beings. Here's what he said. God saw how much? All. God saw all. So that includes us. In fact, we are the culmination of that all. The pinnacle in Genesis 1 is human beings. God saw all that he had made. There's no exceptions that he made. And it was very good. Not just a little bit good. Not just meh. God saw all that he had made, and eh, those humans, I don't know which way, no. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. This is core and foundational to Christian theology. God actually literally does not make junk. He created everything good. He created human beings good. That means you and I are good, good creations. Now, I know everybody's just horrified. He has to say we're wicked and bad. He has to say it or we're not good Christians. Okay, okay, let's get to that part. Of course, we're broken. Absolutely, it's good but broken. Romans 3.23. I mean, right, this is the most famous, it's such a famous passage. For how many? All have sinned. For all, so everybody has sinned. Fully, we're tracking. This is in the Bible, 100% true. Now, I want you to notice. For all have sinned. And therefore are evil to the core. God obviously just basically screwed up. They're a bunch of, because sin, once sin got in, there are a bunch of serial killings waiting to happen. Is that what it says in Romans 3? Nope. For all have sinned, and I just love the, this is, what's actually, this is what the Bible actually says. For all have sinned and, what does it say? Fall short. That's actually what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short. We're broken of the glory of God. Yes, we're broken and we're messed up. Yes, there's a lot of evil in this world. Yes, as human beings, we mess up and we do do evil. But we have, as Christians, gone way out of whack in our negativity about what human nature is actually like. It doesn't actually match up with reality. It also doesn't match up with having a content and non-anxious, peaceful, hopeful view of the world in Jesus Christ. Humanity is good but broken. There's evilness out there. There's pain. There's all this sort of stuff. All right. So, now, what does this have to do with contentment? Well, we looked before and we said, why is it that we can live in this wealthy culture and not be content? Well, one way that Christians can talk about it is just, well, it's because we're just evil and grateful people. Stamp too simplistic. There's an element there of, yes, we're ungrateful, we're selfish, we wrestle with those things, we're broken for sure, but this is too simplistic. And if we think in very overly simplistic terms, we will come up with overly simplistic solutions that don't actually work. 
So let's talk a bit more about what some of the actual reasons why, beyond just the fact that we're selfish and grateful people, why is it hard, even in a wealthy culture and society, to be grateful? Beyond just the fact that we are broken and there, sin is a reality. Well, let's talk a little bit about how God made us. Because actually, one of the reasons, I'm going to tell you this right up front, and then just hold on to it, put it on a shelf if you can't handle it, and we'll come around. One of the reasons that being content is difficult is because God created us, even without sin, to experience attention. He experienced attention. Let me explain this. Let's imagine a world where God made us to be contented the moment we had our bare necessities met. Let's imagine that world. Let's imagine God in his wisdom says, I want people to be content. So the moment they have the bare minimum of food in their stomach, the moment they have just enough fig leaves to make them decent, the moment they have bare minimum you know, shelter above their head, they will instantly be flooded with feelings of contentment. Where would we human beings be at today? I'll tell you where we'd be at, and it wouldn't be in a nice building like this, and I wouldn't be talking to you with any kind of technology like this. We would still have fig leaves on. We'd have a, a life expectancy of somewhere around 30 years, and we'd be eking out an existence out of the ground by hand or with simple tools but we'd be incredibly happy about it. We'd be perfectly complete. I mean, content, not complete, content. Because what happens, what happens to a human being the moment they get just enough food and shelter and clothing, if powerful feelings of contentment flood them, they have no drive to work. So they kick back on their hammock. Oh, wait, those haven't been invented because people are content sleeping on the ground. So you just lie on the ground and go, oh, life is good. Man, you got like parasites. You got disease. Yeah, but think about the good stuff, man. I'm just filled with contentment. I want to put this into a very specific example, and then we're going to talk about the tension God had to make us with. I was reading up this week, because there have been millions, literally millions of inventions that have brought us from the first humans God created to where we are today with modern clothes and food and coffee and cameras and all the stuff that we have. There are millions of human advances. And I'm just going to pick one. So this week, I was just reading an article about uh, smallpox. So smallpox, I don't even know where it first came up, but a few hundred years ago, smallpox becomes a thing, and it starts killing people. And over the course of a few centuries, smallpox kills hundreds of millions of human beings. And then hundreds of millions more who don't get killed when they get smallpox get horribly disfigured. As recently as the 1960s, 15 million people a year were dying of smallpox, not to mention millions of others who didn't die again Horrible disfigurement. Now imagine we live in a world where everybody is perfectly content. And you ask a scientist in the 1960s, so are you working on curing smallpox? Well, no. 
Well, isn't smallpox a horrible thing? Well, it is. It's an absolutely horrible thing. But look at all the good stuff. Life is good. I'm grateful. Look at all the millions of people who aren't dying from smallpox. They're actually they're positive to the point of what? Apathy. They're completely content. So content, they don't want to solve problems. Thankfully, tens of thousands of scientists and government officials did not think 15 million people dying every year and millions of others being disfigured was actually a thing we should be content with. And so they worked for decades, oh, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, and research, and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours, and people. And somewhere in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, they come up with a vaccine. And over the next decade, there's a worldwide vaccination rollout. And by 1980, they did, the, the World Health Organization declares that smallpox is the first disease eradicated by humanity. It's a wonderful story. But the only reason that wonderful thing happened is because some people weren't content with the suffering. Something wrong. They were driven to improve stuff. That's actually a very good thing. Get out of the way here. And that's part of actually how God made us. God, in his wisdom, actually made us with attention. He made us with a drive to improve things, grow things, invent things, and explore things. This is a big part of what makes us humans. This is a big part of what makes us different from animals. God made us with a desire, this tension inside of us, to fix, to invent, to explore, to say things aren't good enough. We can make things better. When a business person seeks to grow their business and they work and they do some overtime, I mean, again, assuming they're doing it within you know, reason, all sorts of stuff. But when they love their work and they grow it and they do all sorts of stuff, that's part of being made in God's image. That's this here. God put that in us. Now, if that's all you feel is things got to get better, things got to get better, things got to get better. Now you're spending your whole life stressed, anxious, comparing. That's not good. On the other side, God also made us to be, feel satisfied, to be grateful. There's a time and a place to just be thankful no matter how bad things are. But if you live your whole life just here, you don't change anything in your life or in the world around you. So God made us with attention. Now, we can say, oh, look at how wicked human beings are. They just can't be content. Well, we're broken. But actually, I think things are a lot more complicated than that. Part of the reason we struggle to be content is because God made us with attention, which is why it takes wisdom to walk with contentment. It's not automatic. You've got to find this balance in here. There's times when it's like, we're going to move ahead, we're going to grow things, we're going to improve things, we're going to fix things. And then there's times to just say, no matter how bad it is, I'm just grateful. That's going to take wisdom. Such as automatic. God made us with that tension. We don't struggle just because we're evil. We struggle because God made us with this tension. And it's we need to work it out prayerfully and with maturity. So now, but now the question is, in the rest of this series, is, okay, is it possible to live with this? Because we're made in God's image. As Christians, we should want to help the world. We should want to fight poverty. We should want to help, you know, solve the world's problems, make the world a better place. Yes, we should, we should want peace. We should want all these things. So we should have this in spades. 
How do we have this drive to improve, grow, invent, explore, fix problems, and also live, as the Bible says repeatedly, with an overriding sense of contentment and peace and not anxiety and overwhelm? And I want to read you a passage, there's a number of passages I could read you, but I think, I think one of the keys to this tension for real contentment can be found in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to read you a passage here, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And this is just, this is just gold, okay? This is thousands of years old here. 5.18 says this. This is what I've observed, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor. So that's highlighted, so obviously I'm coming back to that. That's important. That's part of this gold nugget I'm talking about. Under the sun, during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Now, here's, here's, here's the big idea for today. I want you to notice here that in Ecclesiastes... We're, it's not telling us to find our satisfaction in the results of our labor, although we can find some satisfaction there too. It's not telling us to find our satisfaction in what the rewards, even though that is good, and there's other verses that do talk a little bit about that. It's telling us to find satisfaction in the labor itself. Now, this is very genius, and I'm going to put it up here just in words. Contentment key number one for this series is this. Find contentment in the work of making things better rather than waiting for things to be better or, worse, not caring if they get better. That's apathy. Too much contentment actually can just lead to apathy. Apathy also isn't good. But also, you don't want to be overwhelmed. So let's go back to the smallpox thing for just a second. Because there's two extremes there that you could fall into. One extreme is the extreme of, you go talk to science, are you fixing this problem? No, no, life is good. That's apathy. That's not good. Jesus love says we want to help these people. There's a problem here. We should make it better. The other extreme is you talk to a scientist and they're overwhelmed by the burden of it. 15 million people are dying every year. They can't even enjoy their life. They're destroyed. You know, their, their husband's like, hey, honey, could you stay home today? we got a birthday for, for, you know, one of our kids. And they're like, how can I have fun at a birthday party when 15 million kids are dying of smallpox this year? And they're just back off to the lab, and they can't sleep, and they're completely overwhelmed. They're completely living in this. They're just living there with no satisfaction, no peace. I just, I can't live carrying this burden. But in the middle, with wisdom, Ecclesiastes 5, in the smallpox example, the Ecclesiastes 5 scientist would be a scientist who finds contentment in the work of taking on this problem. This would be a scientist who, they're, they, you ask, like, they're passionate. They love their work. They love getting up in the morning. They love being in a the lab. They love looking at you know, viruses under microscopes and working on vaccines and testing things and doing science. They put in hours and hours, but they're not carrying 15 million people every second of the day. They're passionate about their work, and they don't need to wait for the cure to enjoy their work. They can already be enjoying the work day to day. And then, of course, yes, at the end, there's a huge payoff. 
Oh man, we cured it. There's that exciting payoff. But according to Ecclesiastes 5, the key is find contentment in the work. Another way of saying this would be, I think I'm going to the right spot here. Another way of saying this would be this. Find contentment in the journey, not the destination. Now this has implications. Now, some of you are just looking at this right now and you're like, I don't know how profound that is. This is profound for everything. This is profound for what you buy. This is profound for how you look at your work. This is profound for how you plan and think about your life. Find contentment in the journey, not the destination. I'm gonna, let me share with you a different practical exa- you know, example. Let's go away from smallpox. Let's go to, to, to bikes. I have an uncle who is very passionate about mountain biking. So if you go to his house and go to the basement, he has three different bikes for different, like, so if you're not into mountain biking, there's different kinds of mountain biking, and then you need different kinds of bikes. So now, they're pretty, they're, they're decent bikes, right? Like, each of his three bikes would be much more expensive and better than my one bike. Now, when I go there, now, the, the question is, okay, so, um, is he gets a lot of joy from biking. But he doesn't get a lot of joy just from the bikes. Here's what I never find him doing. If I go to his house, I will not find these three bikes hanging in the garage and him pulling out a lawn chair in the afternoon and just spending a couple hours staring at his bicycles. It's like, oh, these bikes give me so much joy. See, a lot of us, when we think about purchasing things, we're actually thinking about the destination. We want to own something new. And by the way, Buying something new will always give you a little shot of pleasure. There's no question. Like, there's no denying that. That's why some of you are addicted to it. Right? So you, you, you buy something, it feels good. You buy a new car, feels good. You buy a new bike, feels good. You buy a new pair of shoes, nice pair of kicks, wah, feels good. Right? Feels really good. New TV, feels good. All of those things, though, Once you have it, yeah, there's a bit of, that's the destination. You reach the goal. I have this new thing. Feels good for a little while, whatever it is, depending on what it is. Might last maybe even a month, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe just a couple of days, whatever it is. And then it's gone. It's the mountaintop. You spend how much time going up the mountain? You're only at the top. If you climb Mount Everest, you do months and months and months of training and work. And when you get to the top, you're there for two minutes and then you're coming back down. That's the destination. It is short-lived, then it's gone. But I think of my uncle. He doesn't stare at those bikes. What do I do? When I go over there often, he's tinkering with them. He has loved learning how to fix his own bike. So the, the process of working with them, he loves. He's got YouTube videos on. He knows how to take apart all the components. He loves working with them. He loves modifying them. He spends hours in his shop working with the bikes, and he finds pleasure in that. He finds pleasure in the journey. He finds pleasure in taking on different difficulties, skill levels, trails, mastering the skills. He spends hours on trails mastering skills. He's, it's, it's the journey. He enjoys, he enjoys that process. He enjoys that journey. He enjoys getting out in nature. He enjoys going on trips and going out in the mountains and being out in nature for hours and seeing beautiful things. It's not the having a bike It's all the things, the working with, the being on, the mastering skills, the learning. It's all of that toil. It's the toil he's embraced. 
That brings up another piece here, which is really important, contentment key number two. Ongoing contentment and happiness, this is super important, comes from doing, not having. It's the doing. Let's pick up someone else who buys a bike. Let's say you're not really into biking, but you just want to get in shape. So you buy a bicycle. That's a, that's a great reason to buy a bicycle. Great, buy a bicycle. No insult. Don't leave here mad at me because oh, he's picking on me. I don't know of any of you who did this anyway. But you buy a bike because you want to get in shape. Great. You buy a bike. What happens if you buy it for that goal? Well, if you're disciplined, you'll spend six or eight months driving the stink out of that bike and you will actually get in shape. And then what will happen once you have achieved the goal? Once you have the goal, you have gotten in shape. One day you will wake up and you will realize, I hate biking. And you might, depending on your personality, be able to carry on for another week or two weeks or a month. But at some point, if you don't like the doing of the biking, once you reach the goal, you will stop biking. People who love biking, it's not just getting in shape. Getting in shape is a byproduct of I love the journey. I love the doing. Contentment, ongoing contentment, any contentment you get from having is gone quickly. The contentment you get from doing is the ongoing contentment that will keep you going. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is exactly what it says. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor. Find the, the... You want to know one of the biggest... And we'll get to this in another sermon in this series. One of the biggest secrets to finding contentment in life is not to find the right goals, but to find the right journeys, which lead to good goals, but the journey you can embrace. Any of you who watches sports, any of you who watches sports, you will know the next two case studies. Whether you're into hockey or football or baseball, basketball, whatever it is, if you follow a sport, you have seen athletes in that sport that come out of nowhere, and it's like a meteoric rise. They have incredible athletic gifts, they're amazing. They come out of nowhere. Pew, they shoot to the top. They win a championship. They win an MVP. And there's a bunch of these, though. You've seen this. If you followed any kind of sport for a while, some of these guys or gals, they'll get to the pinnacle. And once they get to that pinnacle, they win a championship or they get that first big contract. And they make their first schwack of millions. And right after that, there's, a, there's some athletes. Right after that, they sink into mediocrity. And if they're on your team, you rage. Why? I'll tell you what happened there. Those are people who had a goal, which is good, and they were hungry for that goal. They were hungry to have it. They were hungry to have a championship. They were hungry to have millions of dollars. Guess what? If the joy comes from the having, once you reach it and get it, you lose your hunger, now you go down. There's other athletes who transcend that. They win multiple championships. They make tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, and you can count on them every year. They're going to show up. Their training is amazing. Their nutrition and health is amazing. Why is it? Because they actually love the game itself. They love the sport. They love the grind. They love the details. They love the journey. The byproduct for them is long-term success. It's not the goal. They've embraced a life that brings it. 
Which brings us to our final key, and that is this. Contentment key number three. Find contentment every day in the present. It's not something you can have in the future. So here's, here's the thing. Happiness and contentment are not a destination. At the moment you stop, the moment you stop and think, oh, I have finally achieved happiness, it is already trickling out of your fingers. It won't last long. It won't last long. Because happiness and contentment, you weren't made. If God had wired you that way, we'd still all be stuck thousands of years ago. Nothing would improve. Because you would achieve your happiness, then you'd be happy, and you wouldn't improve or fix anything the rest of your life. We were made to move. We were made to live in this cycle. Rest, work, play, relationships, repeat, all the different things. And it's in the moving. If you try to stop on any of them, if you try to stop, I'm just going to work and that's going to make me happy. And you just work, 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 you're not going to be happy. If you think, if I could just rest, then I'll be happy. I just want to retire and do nothing. Guess what? If you just sit at home and do nothing, you will not be happy. Even billionaires, have you ever noticed this? Especially billionaires. People who don't have to work another day in their life. They have achieved this place that some of us think we want to be at. If only I could have enough money that I wouldn't need to work. Have you ever noticed that people who have enough money not to work are often busier than the rest of us? They just get busy with different things. They build spaceships and try to launch themselves and other people into space. You've been following the news, right? They... They start big philanthropy organizations and spend all their time working for free trying to make the world a better place. They buy sailboats and sail around the world. Why? Because human beings weren't made to stop. It's the constant moving, the resting, the working, the tackling, the, the, the fixing. That is where happiness and contentment are a byproduct of those things. So here's the thing. If you think that contentment is somewhere in your future, if I could only buy X, then I'll be happy. Once I buy that, whatever it is, then I'll be happy. Oh, it'll make you happy for a day, a week, whatever, a month. And then it'll be gone unless you enjoy the process. Unless you enjoy the journey of it. If I could just, oh, once I could be married, then I would be happy. That's what some single people think, right? One, and all the married people just kind of laugh. <laughs> Right? If I could just, oh, you know, and it's not just young people, it's older people. It's like, I, how many times I said, oh, if I could only be married, then I would be happy. If you can't be happy single, you won't be happy married. Because your spouse, now there is the initial, right? There's those first few months where it's essentially a few months of a drug-induced high. The hormones are crazy. The attraction's insane. You don't have to do any work. Nothing would be getting accomplished in the world if that phase lasted longer than a few months. But it's just this wild, you know, feelings of attraction. And then after that subsides, the real work when it actually gets rewarding begins. But guess what? Being, having a good marriage takes work. It's actually something you have to keep doing. It's not something you have. The moment you think, oh, I'm married, now I'm happy. <laughs> you just watch. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking of starting a new ministry, and it's this. Anytime a single person comes to me and says, I think I need to be married to be happy, I'm going to call up two or three unhappy married couples, and we're going to have a meeting together, so you'll know if I call you. <laughs> Just help me out. 
I'm going to sit down and then we're going to say, will you be happier? No, you won't. If you can't be happy single, you won't be happy married. If you can't embrace the journey you're on now, day to day, and the grind of what you're doing, you're not going to find contentment and happiness sometime in the future. Which brings us full circle back to Philippians 4. We read this. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, this is where I'm going to finish the message, is the next verse. The next verse has got to be even more than John 3.16. I'm convinced of it. I see it on athletes. I see it on track stars. And amazing. If you have it tattooed on you, awesome. Love it. Not that I'm saying you should get tattooed. Um, but the next verse is like one of the most famous like one-liners in the entire Bible. And it goes like this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Actually, it says in the NIV, all this. Now, this is a wonderful verse that Christians love to quote as, this is why I'm going to win the world championship because Christ strengthens me to win the Super Bowl. Okay, great. And I can do all things. I can start this business and become a millionaire because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great, I actually don't mind. Use this verse to encourage yourself. I love it. But remember this one thing. This verse is in the context of this conversation about contentment. What Paul is actually saying, and again, I don't mind. You, it's an encouraging verse. Use it. I'm not saying, stop using it. I'm just saying what this verse actually says is you can be content through Christ who gives you strength. You can be content today. You can be content tomorrow. You can actually grab a hold of contentment through Jesus. I can do all this contentment stuff through him who gives me strength. So I want to finish with just a moment. Oh, I mean, when I get to this side, I got to flick the other way. I want to just finish with 60 seconds of just quiet. And if you feel like you're too old, you're like, I'm not in school. I don't want to do homework. Great. Just close your eyes. Just enjoy peace. We don't have much of that in our world. Why don't we just finish the sermon with 60 seconds of just where are you at with your current level of contentment? Have you been putting your hope for contentment in something in the future? Subconsciously, you're going, oh, I'll be content when. When I get that job, when I get married, when I buy that house, new house, whatever, then I'll be content. Have you been putting your hope for contentment in something in the future? Because you can be content now through him who strengthens us. Why don't you just sit on that? You can close your eyes if you want, or you can just take a deep breath. Father, we want to make the world a better place because we love you, not out of a place of worry and discontent, but from a place of contentment. 
Help us to grow in wisdom to seize that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.